Irish nationalists working for independence from England, including the radical Irish Republican Brotherhood, as well as many others who were unknowingly working for them via the Gaelic League, had reason to rejoice in 1912. British liberals in the House of Commons had attempted to divest power to the local Irish government twice before. This was a process known as Home Rule. Both times prior, however, the bills had been defeated. Opportunity for significant independence came again in 1911, when rules were changed to only allow the House of Lords, the body that had vetoed the previous two Home Rule Acts, to be able to only veto legislation for a maximum of two years. The change from an absolute veto to a delaying veto meant that Irish home rule was on its way. All the Irish had to do was to patiently wait. But the Irish aren't known for their patience, which is made clear in the old Irish proverb of pains and patience would take a snail to America. In two years, the streets of Dublin would be filled with bloodshed and carnage, rather than Independence Day celebrations. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Irish politician Eamon de Valera. Episode number two, The Easter Rising. The third and what was designated to be the final Home Rule Bill reached the floor of the House of Commons on April 11, 1912. The northeast of Ireland, what is now the country of Northern Ireland, and what was then most often referred to as Ulster, opposed the Home Rule measures. The majority Protestants in the North feared that Home Rule was a first step to full independence, and they knew that they would become a clear minority within the new Irish government. The industrious North legitimately worried about a bunch of Catholic farmers imposing trade tariffs against England. One MP explained that home rule under the Catholics would be equivalent to Rome rule. In what will turn out to be quite ironic to the story that we are telling, Ulster's James Craig, who will become the political leader of the North, hinted that being ruled by Germany might be preferable to being under the thumb of the Irish. The citizens of Ulster did not stop with rhetoric, however. They also prepared to fight. It was Karl von Clausewitz that said, War is the continuation of politics by other means. In 1912, the Orange Order formed the Ulster Volunteers a 100,000-man militia designed to oppose Irish sovereignty, even if that meant fighting their countrymen to preserve British hegemony. 
in response to and in anticipation of being needed to enforce home rule once it was finalized, the Irish volunteers were formed in the South. Eamon de Valera was in attendance at the formation of the volunteer fighting force that happened at a public meeting in Parnell Square, Dublin on November 25, 1913. He was 31 years old, and upon hearing the speakers, he added his name to the 3,000 others that had signed up. He fatefully said that this was the casting of the die. De Valera's attitude towards the cause of Irish nationalism and his attention to detail saw him progress through the ranks of the volunteers quickly. He rose to the level of second lieutenant, but when he was passed over for captain, the always suspicious de Valera suspected underhand methods were at play. His men, however, managed to correct this slight by unanimously electing him captain of the 3rd Battalion in August of 1914. Tensions were rising in Ireland as the date of home rule approached. Three months earlier, the Ulster Volunteers had successfully smuggled 24,000 rifles from Germany. Not to be outdone, the Irish Volunteers succeeded in smuggling 900 German rifles for their own cause in June. It appeared that Ireland was about to explode into a civil war. But the shot heard around the world did not originate on the Emerald Isle. On June 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary's Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by a member of the Serbian secret society, the Black Hand. On August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia and then subsequently against France on August 3rd. Everything changed with the outbreak of World War I. The Home Rule Bill was still passed, but attached to it was the Suspensory Act of 1914, which signaled an agreement between the leading British political parties to not bring Home Rule until after World War I was over. Although it sought to limit tensions by postponing Home Rule, the Suspensory Act had the opposite effect for both Irish fractions. The MPs from Ulster walked out of the House of Commons, while the Irish Republican Brotherhood began planning for war against England. John Redman, the most influential Irish nationalist politician at this moment, called upon the Irish volunteers to join the British army and support the English war effort to restore the freedom of small nations. He believed that ending the war quickly was the best way to speed up the implementation of home rule. But as we know, World War I was not the speedy nor splendid little war that the belligerents expected. The Irish Republican Brotherhood's decision was speedy, however. They believe that Redmond's call to assist made him a traitor to the independent movement. Just one month after the British government declared war on Germany, the IRB Supreme Council met and decided to stage an uprising in order to secure their independence. Even worse, 
they would do so with the assistance and support of England's chief adversary, Germany. Council members Tom Clark and Sean McDermott were put in charge of what would become known as the Rising. For the next year, Amon de Valera knew nothing of the planned Rising. His men in the 3rd Battalion regularly met for training in the foothills around Dublin in order to practice shooting and military maneuvers. A shortage of guns, ammunition, and incendiaries regularly meant that they were just running around in the woods throwing rocks at each other. On one occasion, the mission was to recapture a stray donkey named Kaiser. One of the lectures that the volunteers sat through, however, involved concentrated street-fighting tactics for cities like Dublin. De Valera was the only battalion commander in Dublin who wasn't part of the secretive Irish Republican Brotherhood. Patrick Pierce had vouched for him, however, saying that as a soldier he would always obey his superiors. The IRB was said to have liked De Valera because he did not have a wide circle of friends, nor was he very talkative. On March 13, 1915, De Valera was informed about the plans for the Rising. He recalls that he was the only one at that meeting who did not expect to survive. Afterwards, the normally cheap De Valera went out and bought a carbine semi-automatic pistol that was named Peter the Painter, after a famous anarchist in London. As the date for the Rising neared, de Valera complained to his IRB contact that it was wrong that some of his subordinates, who were IRB members, knew more information than he did, and expressed fear in having to serve two masters. In this case, the executive of the Irish Volunteers, as well as the IRB Supreme Council. McDonough, his contact, laughed heartily and said it wanted to be a problem, as the executive was already controlled by the IRB. The deeply suspicious de Valera had found himself deeply entangled within a conspiracy. Still wanting to reconcile his own feelings, he reluctantly agreed to be sworn in to the IRB, with an understanding that the oath would require him only to follow the orders of the volunteer's executive. As you will come to see, the wording of oaths was incredibly important to him. The Rising was set for Easter Sunday 1916, but two actions doomed the insurrection from the beginning. The first involved the Germans. The British troops that were stationed in Ireland had vastly superior guns than those of the volunteers. Knowing that they would have less men at the start, they felt that they needed to at least have better rifles. The plan was to receive an illegal arms shipment from Germany, which hoped that an uprising would draw England's attention away from the front, requiring them to shift their forces to Ireland. The Aude was a German gun-running steam cargo transport disguised as a Norwegian ship. For the Rising, it was carrying 20,000 rifles, 1 million rounds of ammunition, 
and three machine guns. The ship arrived on Good Friday, April 21st, a day earlier than had been expected. To the ship captain's dismay, there were no volunteers at the port waiting to meet him to unload the contraband. Worse for him, the odd had been secretly tracked by the Royal Navy during the entire journey. The captain of the odd scuttled his ship, and to this day the seabed remains littered with ammunition. Sir Roger Casement arrived later that day for the scheduled pickup, and was arrested and executed for treason, the first victim of the Rising. The failure to procure the desperately needed weapons accelerated the fear in some of the planners, which directly triggered the second reason that doomed the Rising. The Irish Volunteers' leader was Owen McNeil, and although he was a staunch nationalist, when you compare him to the members of the IRB Supreme Council, he comes off as a moderate. The IRB kept the plans for the Rising secret from McNeil until the last minute. He was willing to fight, but he wanted it to be in response to an unjustified British action, such as introducing conscription. In order to get McNeil on board, the IRB created a fake document, known as the Castle Document, which made it clear that the British authorities were planning to arrest the leaders of the Irish Volunteers, Sinn Féin, and the Gaelic League. McNeil was fired up to oppose the British, but then got wind of the real plans for the weekend's rising. Furious at being left out of the decision-making process, McNeil issued a cancellation order for all military maneuvers and parades that had previously been scheduled for Easter Sunday. He published it in the front pages of a number of Irish newspapers. Since the rank and file had not been told the truth behind the planned maneuvers, many believed that this was simply a cancellation of their normal everyday Easter parade duty. On Easter Sunday morning, the IRB met to decide what to do in light of McNeil's countermanding order. Unbeknownst to them, the British had just finished hosting their own meeting to decide what to do as they were privy to most of the plans at this point in time. They mistakenly decided that the arrests of the insurrectionist leader should wait until after the Easter celebrations were completed. The IRB had no intention in waiting, however, and they only delayed the rising by a day, shifting it from Easter Sunday to Monday. Additionally, at this meeting, they decided that the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army would be renamed as the Army of the Irish Republic, and elected former schoolmaster Patrick Pierce as their president and commander-in-chief. New orders for Monday were sent out to all unit commanders. Still, those leaders had trouble getting the word out to their commands as many had left for vacation as soon as the cancellation news had hit the front pages. De Valera's paranoia was evident throughout the Rising. On Holy Thursday, he slept at home, but fully clothed with his automatic pistol by his side. On Friday and Saturday, 
he slept at the house of his lieutenant to avoid any possible arrest. He refused to tell his wife anything that was going on, and it's said that she had no idea until she was informed that there were members of the volunteers inside St. Stephen's Green digging military trenches. McNeil's cancellation and the subsequent shift from Sunday to Monday meant that only 130 of De Valera's 500 men arrived for the event. The 3rd Battalion, regarded as one of the worst within the Volunteers, was assigned to Boland's Bakery. The 3rd will be one of the last battalions to surrender on Sunday, six days after the Rising had begun. While we'll focus on Amon's performance in the Rising, we are going to step away from his individual actions and look more broadly at the story of the Easter Rising. At the foremost of the many sources that I will rely upon for the telling of this story is the work of Derek Molnew and Darren Kelly, who wrote When the Clock Struck in 1916. The two authors are not classically trained historians, but managed to bring the battle to life with their intimate knowledge of the streets from their hometown of Dublin. Before we begin in earnest, it's necessary to set the stage. Remember that England is more than a year into fighting World War I in 1916. In just a couple of months after the events that we detail here, the Battle of the Somme will begin, and the British will lose 60,000 troops on the first day and 420,000 troops overall in just that battle. The troops that the British maintained in Ireland were not the elite troops of Her Royal Highness military. Many were unfit for European fighting, past their prime and closer to retirement, or were Irish loyalists, who were not quite loyalist enough to want to die in a trench in France. The first target of the Rising was the British Army High Explosive and Ammunition Reserve that was housed in the magazine fort in Phoenix Park. The intention was that the explosion of the fort would no doubt be heard throughout the city, as a signal to all that the rising had begun. The fireworks were to start at noon, but at 10 a.m. no volunteers had reported for duty. Lieutenant Daly had the bombs for the mission, but no soldiers to carry it out. Daly did what any Irishman in 1916 would do, faced with the situation. He got on his bicycle and cycled over to find James Conley, who issued a written order that each rebel battalion should donate six or seven men to Daly's special force. An hour before it was about to begin, the rising was already off to a comically bad start. After securing the men who arrived either on foot or by bike, handguns were distributed, as well as football clothes to change into. The magazine fort was directly across from a soccer field, and it was not uncommon for a game to spring up around noon. The plan was to charge the fort from the field and then escape in a getaway van. Unfortunately, this also went horrifically wrong. At 11.30, a dog darted in front of the van as it was on its way to receive its payload, 
The driver swerved and crashed into a lamppost, totaling the van. Once again, the resourceful Irishmen did the only thing that they could when faced with such a problem. They hired a horse-drawn cab to take him to the rebels. While waiting for the getaway vehicle, which now had a little bit more horsepower to it, the pretend footballers went to take the field. The only problem was that no one had brought a football. Understanding that the guards at the magazine fort might suspect something if 22 men were pretending to kick around a ball without an actual one, they went to purchase one from a nearby store. Unfortunately, no one thought to bring any actual money. Thankfully, the kind shopkeep handed one over for free. Their luck was finally turning. 20 minutes after the planned start, someone finally kicked the ball over the fort's wall. They then proceeded to ask the sentry if they could have their ball back. Upon politely opening the gate so that the boys could retrieve their ball, however, the sentry was assaulted, dragged to the ground, and felt the cold steel of a pistol against his neck. Following the orders of blow up the fort, kill no one if possible, the rebels rushed past him and quickly overpowered the other guards in the keep. Unable to locate the key to the high explosives room, the volunteers piled canister bombs against the wall next to that room. They hoped that the ensuring blast would blow through the wall and ignite whatever high explosives were presumably inside. The Irish volunteers then released their prisoners with a stern warning that the keep would blow in five minutes as they rushed towards their waiting getaway carriage. Unfortunately, all they and the cabbie who was charging them for the ride heard was a dull boom. The high explosives room had failed to be breached. The rising had begun with a whimper rather than a boom. The first intense fighting began around Dublin Castle, the seat of the British government in Ireland, as well as the gateway to the buildings that made up City Hall. Captain Sean Connolly led 40 men plus a handful of women, some of whom were combatants, while others served as message dispatchers and nurses. City Hall had been built in 1779 and stood just outside the gates of Dublin Castle. Commander James Conley saw his brother off with the statement, Good luck, Sean, for we won't meet again. As the rebels approached the gates, they shot and killed 45-year-old police constable James O'Brien, who was rushing to close the gates. Once inside, they cut the communication cables, but the British were just able to run to the nearby telegraph office to signal to London that a rebellion had begun. How could they have planned so much but failed to see this simple workaround? The rebels had planned to take the telegraph office, but the insurgents that had been assigned to the task were incorrectly informed by a random lady on the street that the office was full of military men, and therefore they decided not to press their luck. The insurgents did manage to take City Hall, 
and began to fortify it with anything that they could find. Within three hours, the British 3rd Cavalry Brigade arrived and the fighting began in earnest. In most of these battles, the difference will come down to two things. First, only the British had high-powered machine guns. These were set up like cannons, and once set up, the Irish had no answer for them. Second was the sheer amount of men that the British could throw at the insurgents. The countermanding order of MacNeil meant that less than half of the volunteers showed up at the onset of the revolution, and the rebels mistakenly believed that the local citizens would be inspired by their act to rise up with them. This part of the rising unfortunately never came to fruition. The 3rd Cavalry Brigade had 1,000 men to the rebels' measly 40. Shots ricocheted throughout City Hall like pinballs, bouncing off the internal stone pillars where the Citizens' Army's men and women crouched helplessly under the barrage. Believing that they were safe to press the advantage, Loyalist troops marched out of the gates of Dublin Castle in bunched-up formation, making easy targets for rebel sharpshooters set up in outposts along street corners. The unprepared British forces were immediately surrounded on all sides by three- and four-story buildings, with each window full of citizen army rifles that blasted their enemies relentlessly and without pity. They were forced to beat a hasty retreat, leaving 20 dead in the streets. Not wanting to risk another frontal assault, the British pulled the blueprints for City Hall and emerged behind the building through the cellars. Once inside, they lobbed hand grenades towards the rebels' positions. The fighting in the halls could only be described as panicked and intense. At one point, two British forces ran headlong into each other, each mistaking the other for the rebels. They slashed and stabbed each other with their bayonets, while the Irish fired down upon them from the floor above. Trapped up there, they were momentarily saved by Ginny Shanahan, a volunteer that was not in uniform and had been mistaken for a prisoner. Upon her release, she told the British that there were hundreds upstairs, big guns and everything. In reality, there were about a dozen exhausted rebels remaining on the roof, with little food or water and even less hope for survival. With the enemy contained on the roof, the British decided to wait them out, and at midnight, Captain Elliotson was given fresh orders to take 100 men and his machine guns to occupy the Shelburne Hotel to face another group of rebels that had set up at St. Stephen's Green. St. Stephen's Green is a huge public park in the city of Dublin, similar to Central Park in New York City. The enormous rectangular park was established in 1880. Its surrounding streets are among the busiest areas in the city center. With 11 different openings, the green was always going to be difficult to hold. The volunteer assault on the green began at Davies Pub. In response to being told to pay their tab, 
A young rebel replied with five minutes notice for everyone to exit the pub or be shot. 42-year-old Michael Mallon, an Irishman that was a British Army veteran, was given the task of taking the green and holding it for its precious supply of fresh water. His second-in-command is one of the most interesting figures in all of history, the flamboyant 48-year-old Countess Constant Markiewicz. The Countess was born in London to Protestant parents. Her father was a knighted Arctic explorer, and her grandfather was accused of either starving his Irish tenant farmers during the potato famine or packing them into coffin ships to emigrate off his land. She became a countess when she married Polish royalty in 1900. Three years into the marriage, the couple moved to Dublin, where Constance took up a career in painting. Those pursuits, plus time spent at her local salon, connected her to Irish nationalists, and in 1909 she founded a nationalist youth brigade that offered weapons training to both boys and girls. Look up any picture of the Countess, and you will find her posing for professional portraits with her gun. She radicalized easily, and was first arrested in 1911 for attempting to burn the Union Jack. Despite her aristocratic upbringing, she was more than just talk, and was always willing to act on her beliefs. During the 1913 strikes, for instance, she took out loans and sold her jewelry in order to buy food for striking families, as well as to run a soup kitchen for poor school children. In 1913, her husband moved back to Ukraine, and while he would never return to Ireland, they wrote letters to each other, and he was by her side when she died after complications from appendicitis. Speaking of her feminine sensibilities, the second-in-command for the day followed her own fashion advice of dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank, and buy a revolver. The volunteers arrived at the park early Monday morning and commenced barricading the gates, taking over buildings that would serve as outposts and digging trenches. The first casualty in the park was a 29-year-old police constable who was trying to climb over one of the blockades. After two warnings from the Countess, he was shot dead and left outside the gate as a warning to others. Their main objective was to prevent the British from rushing troops to the other locations from nearby Portobello Barracks, which was about a mile to the south. Malin and Markovitz had 39 men to guard the 22 acres of land. They might have been more successful at it if they had taken over the Shelbourne Hotel, whose five upper floors gave a commanding view of the entire surrounding area. With so few men, however, Malin felt an assault was too risky. The British would then move to occupy the hotel and proceeded to place a machine gun nest on the fourth floor. This, plus the fact that the trenches were only waist-deep, made it impossible to hold the park. In short order, Malin pulled his soldiers back to the Royal College of Surgeons building at the west end of the park. 
Two stories tall with thick granite walls and seven upper windows made it significantly more defensible than their prior position in the park. Rebels continued to remain pinned down in individual hiding spots, relatively safe from the machine gun and snipers at the Shelburne Hotel. This was no walk in the park for the British. Whenever their men wandered into the park, the foliage and confusing paths resulted in them getting picked off by the hidden Irishmen. A stalemate emerged at St. Stephen's Green, as the two sides resorted to sniping at each other. This was one of the only locations where locals came and joined the ranks of the volunteers. By the third day, Malin's forces had grown to include 120 men and women. The most interesting thing about the Battle of St. Stephen's Green, besides the fact that the volunteers held out for all six days of the Rising, was the unspoken truce reserved for the park's professional groundskeeper. On Wednesday morning, park keeper James Kearney, who had spent the prior two days living in the midst of a war zone, went across the killing field to feed the park's ducks. Both sides simply stopped fighting, their eyes fixated on a man doing his job, seemingly totally unaware of the facts all around him. After he finished his task, he calmly made his way back to his quaint dwelling in the park, and then as soon as he was clear, the firing began again. He would repeat this task that evening and each of the following days until the rising ended. Every time. Both sides paused, trying to kill each other, so that the ducks would not be disturbed. Death was all around the green that week, including from the rifle of Margaret Skinner, who had repeatedly run the increasingly lethal gauntlet of British snipers on her bicycle to deliver messages. With encouragement from the Countess, she exchanged her civilian clothes for her volunteer uniform, grabbed a rifle, and proceeded to hit a target 300 yards out with her first shot. Six more men would fall to her aim. Women also aided the volunteers to resist their greatest threat, hunger. The soldiers had each arrived with rations designed to last for 24 hours. The Surgeon's College did not offer up much in the way of edible supplies, although oddly enough there were 80 rifles found stored in its basement. Women throughout the six days of the Rising hiked up their skirts and risked enemy fire to go out and bring back any food that they could find. This included buying supplies from local shopkeepers, who had decided that it was safer to keep their stores open than to simply lock their doors and hope for the best. A full assault on the college never occurred, as the other positions around the green slowly fell one by one. Captain Elliotson of the British was perfectly content to keep these rebels contained exactly where they were. Although the fighters at the Green held out longer than most, it was at Mount Street Bridge where they inflicted the most casualties. Amon de Valera and his 3rd Battalion were stationed behind the bridge in Boland's Bakery. 
His was the furthest back of three positions for this location. At 11 a.m. on Easter Monday, volunteers entered South City, a quiet and wealthy suburb, in order to hold off any support coming from Beggar's Bush Barracks. Volunteer snipers took over some of the most exclusive houses that Dublin had to offer on both sides of the River Liffey, which intersects through the city. Four strategically placed locations were barricaded and would result in a killing field. Although each outpost only had a handful of men, the heroics of each one will live forever in Irish lore, as will the names of the outposts. Clan William House, St. Stephen's Schoolhouse, Appropriate Hall, and 25 Northumberland. At 2 p.m., a patrol emerged from Beggar's Bush Barracks and was efficiently turned back by the Irish. The troops were part of the Gorgias Rex Home Defense Force, but due to the fact that its members were all close to retirement, the force had been given the derogatory nickname of Gorgias Rex. Amazingly, the patrol did not even have their guns loaded when they walked into the ambush. After the initial repelling of the Rex, there wasn't much work to be done for this crew on Monday, as City Hall and the Green attracted the immediate attention of the British Defense Forces. Lieutenant Malone and Seamus Grace were the lone rebels stationed at 25 Northumberland. Malone was armed with a Peter the Painter Mausel semi-automatic pistol that could be held like a rifle, but had a quicker rate of accurate fire. Clan William House had five men, with three remaining barricaded at the front windows and two on each side of the house to check fields of fire. The calm ended for this portion of Dublin at 4 a.m. on Wednesday. The 59th Midland Infantry Division of the British Army had been dispatched from Liverpool. Most of these men were raw recruits who truly believed that they had landed in France rather than Ireland. The young men were flabbergasted at how well the locals spoke English in response to them saying, Bonjour, Mademoiselle. The 59th had left England so quickly that they had forgotten all of their heavy weapons dockside, making this one of the few locations where the weaponry was evenly matched. A large portion of this group was made up of the Sherwood Foresters, a particularly incompetent group that had thus far only received a few weeks of training. As the Sherwood Foresters reached the junction, Malone and Grace let loose, and the crossroads between Clan William House and Number 25 became a scene of carnage, as Malone's Peter the Painter did its gruesome work. Every squeeze of its trigger was met with the horrific sight of hands clutching at wounds and screams filling the air. The Foresters had prepared for trench warfare in continental Europe, here, they found themselves in the leafy suburbs of South Dublin, on cobbled streets, with intense, close-range, high-velocity fire coming from several directions at once. The 3rd Battalion in Boland's Bakery provided little assistance with the onslaught that was happening half a mile in front of their position. 
At 8 a.m. on Wednesday, the gunboat Helga had arrived on the river Liffey and proceeded to level the empty Liberty Hall, which the British had mistakenly believed housed rebel forces. The attack on Liberty Hall was so surprising that the garrison at the post office, the headquarters for the rebels, mistakenly believed that they were under attack. Bolins was hit by a few stray shells, and De Valera was forced to come up with an ingenious idea. Next door to the bakery was a huge distillery, and on Thursday, Eamon ordered his men to climb the tower to place the Irish Republican flag on top of the building. Luckily, one of his men had come to the Rising with a pike, rather than his rifle, and they used it to hang the flag high and proud for all to see. The Helga spent the majority of its day on Thursday diligently destroying the empty distillery with the flag on it. As the day went on, the warship only grew more frustrated as they were only able to blow the flag askew rather than removing it. As he grew older in age, De Valera was known to have regularly embellished this particular story telling his children that he personally led the mission to hang the flag. He would describe his midnight run while fearing for his life in the face of enemy sniper fire, as well as his efforts at climbing a ladder, despite his well-known fear of heights and poor eyesight. Why he felt the need to embellish is unclear, but the order probably saved the bakery and De Valera's men. Communication was rare between Boland's Bakery and the men defending Mount Street Bridge, because De Valera had dismissed all of the women that were running dispatch messages across the city. This meant that he had cut himself off from communicating with the rest of the forces. If he had received dispatches, he would have been proud at how the rebels were holding up this far into the Rising. From his own vantage point, British corpses littered the road at the junction, and many wounded that had been abandoned groaning in agony throughout the warm afternoon. A force of 60 Sherwood foresters were sent against the schoolhouse, but the snipers at Clan William House killed 48 of them before they reached the doors. The remaining 12 were picked off once they realized that those barricaded doors weren't easy to open. Even worse, the schoolhouse was not one of the main locations for the rebels, but the foresters continued to act like it was the epicenter. Four separate attacks at the school all resulted in more Englishmen wounded and dying in the street. One of the rebels in Clan William House described the scene, As far as the eye could see, there were khaki-clad troops behind hedges, trees, and garden steps. Without making any progress, the Brigadier Colonel telephoned General Lowe to inform him of the lack of progress. Unfortunately for him and his men, the reply was to take the bridge at all costs. Every 20 minutes the whistle blew, foresters charged, and volunteers mowed them down. At 5 p.m. the situation changed, however as the British were reinforced with grenades. Number 25, with Malone and Grace in it, was targeted first. 
The back door was smashed in, and Grace turned to fire a couple of shots before his gun jammed. He had no choice but to rush for the basement. Once there, he ran his pistol under a cold tap to cool it down. His hand was already mangled and covered with burns from overusing his weapon. He was forced to run further for cover when a grenade was lobbed down the stairs after him. After killing the first few men to descend down the stairway, two more grenades were lobbed down, and Grace did the only thing he could. He charged up the stairway, shooting at anything moving and sprinting out into Percy Lane, where he killed several stunned British troops and then ran off. James Grace was later captured alive, hiding in a coal shed. He had survived all the way till Saturday. Malone was not as lucky, as his body was found within number 25. Clan William House suffered a similar fate, and the path across Mount Street Bridge was finally opened. The fighting for this single bridge resulted in almost two-thirds of the total British casualties during the Rising, Four British officers and 216 soldiers were killed or wounded during the intense fighting against just 17 Irish volunteers. Despite the success against overwhelming numbers, de Valera never reinforced rebels that were fighting in front of him, despite having 100 men at his disposal. As Thursday arrived, Amon knew that his position was next in line. But the one in front of him was not the only battle raging. Two miles southwest of Dublin city centre, rebels took up positions at the South Dublin Union, a 50-acre medical complex that was surrounded by alcohol distilleries. 35-year-old Eamon Kant was in charge of preventing British Army troops from rushing to the city centre from Richmond Barracks. The battle plan at the beginning of the Rising involved breaking in and taking over Jameson's Whiskey Distillery, Watkins Brewery, and Rose Distillery. Jameson's main building was several stories high and had all-around visibility and excellent defensive cover. It was, and remains, a fortress-like structure in Dublin. Forty volunteers eagerly took the distillery. The Irish rebels then attempted to clear out the area of civilians, even knocking on the doors of a small convent in the center of the Union grounds. The armed volunteer was taken aback when an elderly nun answered the door and asked if he had come to read the gas meters. His reply was, No, sister, but we are in a hurry. The rebels first encountered the British 3rd Battalion Royal Irish Regiment a force made up of Irishmen who had just returned from service in France. As they proceeded with haste to the under-attack Dublin Castle, they were met with sniper fire from the rooftops. The small alleyways in this complex funneled the attacking forces for the sharpshooters. Robert Holland was the most lethal shot in the Union Center, working to deliver a never-ceasing cascade of killing blows, as a female member of the Kumana Banan worked side by side with him to continuously reload his spare rifle while he fired his main one. 
Whenever the British felt like they were making ground, they became lost in the maze of back streets, while volunteers would appear suddenly at windows, firing, and then quickly redeploying to another vantage point to fire again. At one point, the Loyalists chased volunteers through the Union Hospital. As they went through the building, however, the volunteers would pop out of doors that they already passed in order to hit and then run. Towards dusk, at the end of the first day, the volunteers offered a ceasefire so that the dead could be collected. The Loyalists replied that there could be no negotiations as all of their officers were dead. The next day, the British brought in cavalry lancers to attack Jameson's distillery. Unless you're Don Quixote, one has to wonder about the wisdom of sending horsemen to charge a whiskey factory fortress down narrow streets lined with sharpshooters three to four stories above you. Bones of humans and animals alike were heard shattering under the bloody and grotesque impacts of the Mauser rifles of the insurgents. The position at Jameson's distillery was so strong that the other forces positioned in Union Center retreated to it in the early hours of Wednesday. Wishing to reach the doors without incident, their commander ordered his men to remove their shoes, so as not to make any noise. Rebel Thomas Young enlisted the help of his mother, who lived nearby with a request to bring as many overcoats as she could find to help conceal their weapons. They even managed to steal three cows from an unsuspecting boy who wasn't paying attention as he herded them through the city. The poor boy had to ask the volunteers if they had seen his heifers, to which Thomas replied that no cattle had come this way. Kant, the Union Center commander, was eventually caught in the fighting on Thursday was arrested after the British used grenades to tunnel through the walls in order to reach his outpost. Similarly to what happened in St. Stephen's Green, the British forces decided that the Union area wasn't worth the blood price, and retired their forces to other parts of the city by Friday. Another location taken on the Monday of the Rising was Jacob's Biscuit Factory. The factory was centrally located between St. Stephen's Green, Dublin Castle, and the South Dublin Union. It was at this location that it became clear that the fighting was not having the intended effect of inspiring the locals to rise up. Protesters emerged at the Biscuit Factory in force singing and dancing to English songs and throwing rocks at the rebels. In fact, the first victim at this location was a civilian protester who mistakenly reached for a volunteer's rifle. At one point, the crowd swelled to hundreds, and the rebels barely managed to stop the gate from being set on fire. While they were prepared to fight for the factory, an order eventually arrived for most of the 66 men to retreat to the post office. The endless waiting, sniper fire, and sleeplessness took its toll on the garrison, but worse for those stationed at the biscuit factory were the endless meals that had consisted only of cake for an entire week.
The rebels did have a retreat planned through the four courts, but unfortunately it became overrun by Tuesday. They were not the only ones who had their plans ruined, however. Pinned down by snipers in a church bell tower, volunteer Padar Clancy did not want to wait around to have his time card punched. He and Thomas Smart climbed over their own barricade carrying cans filled to the brim with gasoline. They sprinted across a bridge while soldiers on the far side took aim. Neither they nor their fuel canisters were hit, and after their mad dash across the open stretch of road, they managed to pour the gasoline through the windows of a nearby house and set it alight. The fire spread across Cusher's Quay, destroying two houses and forcing the British to abandon the entire block. For time, we'll leave the four courts for now, but we'll return to them in a later episode as these buildings play a significant role in the outbreak of a different war in Ireland. The partial abandonment of the four courts on Tuesday was unknown to the Central Command at the General Post Office. Besides being blind to what was going on around them, the four courts had been viewed as one of the few places that the rebels were holding, and therefore became the prime spot for headquarters to retreat to. Let's turn our attention finally to that post office, a building known as the GPO, to examine the chaos that surrounded the command center and the official headquarters of the Irish Republic. The GPO building is an imposing, towering structure that remarkably still stands in central Dublin today. It's two blocks from the River Liffey, and four blocks from Trinity College. The building, which was built in 1818, serves as the divider between Lower and Upper Sackville Street. Once again, the beginning of the Rising begins with a comedy of errors. The GPO assault was led by the three-man leadership team of Commanders Pierce, Plunkett, and Connolly. The three made quite a group. 28-year-old Plunkett was slowly dying of tuberculosis. Pierce, a former teacher and the orator of the crew, was likely afflicted with Asperger's syndrome. And James Connolly was a full-tilt socialist. The three men led 150 volunteers in full uniform up Lower Sackville Street. Several British Army personnel snickered at them as they saw what they believed to be Irishmen playing soldiers as they lounged nearby. If they had kept their gaze on the volunteers for a moment or two longer, they would have noticed a car following behind, stuffed with weapons, ammunition, and canister bombs. How much the volunteers understood of their mission that day is up for debate. Upon reaching the GPO, Captain George Plunkett ordered a stop, then a left turn, and then issued his command of the GPO, charge. He received a blank stare from most of his soldiers, to which Connolly then responded by bellowing out the words, Take the post office. Despite being Easter Monday, the GPO was alive with work, including a number of British Army officers and Dublin police personnel, all of whom were immediately taken prisoner. The citizens were ordered out, and the volunteers began to fortify the building. 
In addition to thick walls, the GPO had a flat rooftop, its own kitchen and restaurant, and mailboxes that could serve as pigeonholes for the butts of their rifles. The rebels raised the Irish tricolor flag and the Irish Republic flag while Pierce went out of the building to read aloud the proclamation of the Irish Republic, which he then handed out to a local paperboy for distribution throughout the city. The Irish Free State was officially born, but whether it would survive long enough for recognition was up to the fighters holed up in the building behind him. The first to respond to the storming of the GPO was a 30-man reconnaissance patrol of the 5th and 12th Cavalry Lancers. They observed the flags and began a slow trot towards the post office. The volunteers understood this task better than their initial one, and within seconds had formed two ranks, one kneeling in front with bayonets fixed to their rifles. They fired their first volley before the command was given by Connolly, but the second volley found their marks and killed four lancers and considerably more of their horses. The growing crowd began to panic at the sight of the violence and the sounds of several horses perishing in agony in front of them. Unprepared for resistance, the lancers turned away to await reinforcements. This portion of Dublin contained many of the city's worst slums, and the stunned silence on the street quickly turned to looting. Connolly and Pierce did everything that they could to stop the looting, but the impoverished crowd were more interested in the economic opportunity rather than the cause of the Republic. As the British retreated, the volunteers took control of the surrounding buildings to use as outposts and began to tunnel through them so they could move freely about the area. The Lancers' reinforcements came via the Kingsbridge Railway Station, two miles to the west. The British had shipped 1,600 troopers into Dublin, including 400 which were immediately sent to the post office, and the remainder being sent to defend Dublin Castle, which is where the fighting had spilled over from the football pitch. More Loyalist troops issued out of Trinity College which hosted an officer training corps and served as the check-in point for British soldiers who were on leave in Dublin. The forces assembled against the Rising therefore included soldiers from South Africa, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Many of the 100 men that arrived at Trinity College took up positions in the college's upper floors to see whom they could snipe at. On Wednesday morning, the gates of Trinity College opened up to allow two horse-drawn artillery pieces to emerge. Six men were assigned to each massive gun, which took six highly trained individuals to operate. These guns even had the choice of which type of ammunition they wanted to use for the job, high explosive, shrapnel, or smoke. The high explosive rounds were the choice of the day. These guns, however, had to be driven into the ground, something that is relatively easy on most battlefields, but not so easy on the cobblestone streets of Dublin. Each time the cannon fired, it pushed itself back, spinning like it was on ice. The men then had to reposition the gun, and then begin the arduous process of recalculating the target. 
To make things worse for the rebels, it was only shortly after the emergence of those artillery pieces that the Helga emerged on the river Lifty and began to level Liberty Hall, which was located three blocks between the post office and the gunship. The British artillery officers managed to fix their anchoring problem later that afternoon. Half a dozen canal navigators braved crossing the sniping zone dressed in their recognizable overalls. They began to dig up a section of the street. The volunteers assumed that something seriously wrong was going on. For instance, perhaps a gas main was at risk of exploding. So they participated in an unofficial ceasefire so that the navigators could finish their work. Unfortunately for them, these men were actually British artillery officers who were just dressed up as navigators. After they finished destroying the road, they succeeded in anchoring the guns to the ground, after which shells struck the area surrounding the post office roughly every 30 seconds. The rebels' water supply became jeopardized after the building's water tank was mistakenly hit by a machine gunner who repeatedly attempted to cut to pieces Connolly's Plow and Stars flag, a symbol of Irish socialism. Communication between the outposts became impossible, despite runners being regularly dispatched and crossing through buildings. It got so bad that the commanders in the GPO resorted to inserting messages into a tin can attached to twine that they strung across Sackville Street. Things started to turn even more for the worse at the GPO on Thursday. The Irish Times printing office burst into flames after being struck by artillery shells. The fire spread to multiple buildings, and volunteers had no choice but to evacuate the entire block around the Dublin Bread Company, which was two blocks away from the post office. The fire leveled buildings and succeeded in creating a clear line of sight to the post office from the Helga. By the end of the evening, it was becoming clear to Connolly that they could not hold the post office. Worse, the Loyalists were slowly surrounding the building, cutting off their escape path. Connolly himself left the post office to oversee the building of a new barricade that would allow them to exit and retreat from the GPO. Just as he finished the barricade, a stray bullet struck his right arm. Worried that his men would see it as a bad sign, Connolly had the wound in his arm quickly bandaged and continued fighting without telling anyone. The GPO took its first direct hit, four days into the fighting, and shook violently with the impact. Connolly, already with a bullet wound to the arm, fell violently after a bullet ricocheted and struck his ankle. He was not able to shake this one off quite as well, and had to retire to a back room to rest. A kind-hearted comrade gave him a cigarette and a detective novel to help the time pass. Supposedly, Connolly said, it's a grand thing to be wounded to get all this attention. At 10 p.m. on Thursday, Hoyt's Oil and Spice, a business catty-corner to the GPO, caught fire, and its oils caused a violent eruption. Volunteer Paddy Mahone asked his partner if this were the end, to which he received the reply, 
that as far as this building is concerned, it is indeed the end. Outposts were beginning to falter at this point, and there were at least two instances where the rank-and-file British soldiers sought to soothe their rage by taking on the role of judge, jury, and executioner. Twice, impromptu firing squads were stopped at the last minute by cool-headed sergeants. Citizens and members of the Red Cross increasingly became targets of the British in the crossfire. Friday morning, James Conley, who was unable to walk, was placed on a wheeled hospital bed and moved to the front of the building to coordinate the last defense of the GPO. He might have to lie down, but he still wasn't going to take it. Although they assumed that the end would come in a full frontal assault, the British knew better than the insurgents how the other parts of the rebellion were playing out and were therefore content to bomb the rebel headquarters into submission. Seeing the inevitable, the commanders ordered the women who had joined the rebellion to leave and surrender for their own safety. At 3 p.m., a shell penetrated the roof of the GPO, causing a huge fire within the building. Additionally, the building was so shot up that fighters on the second floor had to crawl on their hands and knees to avoid being hit by opposing machine gunners. It was clear that it was time to abandon the post office. The volunteers began tunneling in earnest through all the nearby buildings. Seeking to avoid straight lines, they would zigzag and make the tunnel go up at points and then down at others, so that anyone giving chase would not have a clear line of sight. They knew at this point that the enemy would be breathing down their necks as they ran for their lives. Once they realized they were surrounded, however, the rebellion's leaders decided to take a different course of action. Instead of running away, they would run towards the enemy. The leaders decided to take over the Williams and Woods Sweet and Soap Factory as the new headquarters for the volunteer army. Besides the immense size of the factory, it was decided that the building would be deemed too close to the British positions for them to utilize their artillery advantage against the building. Michael Joseph O'Rahilly, who went by just THE O'Rahilly, was chosen for the job. Despite his bravery, it ended up being a suicide mission for the O'Rahilly and his 30 men. They charged a machine gun nest through no man's land. The guns whistled round 700 meters per second into and through O'Rahilly as he was shot open diagonally from shoulder to hip. Incredibly, despite his wounds, he survived for 19 hours. Albert Mitchell, an ambulance driver, found O'Rahilly miraculously still alive on Saturday after the surrender had occurred and medics were thus allowed to make their way freely through the previous week's carnage. According to Albert, he wasn't allowed to treat the man, as he was guarded by a young English officer who informed him that his captive must be someone of importance, and the bastards are leaving him there to die of his wounds. It's the easiest way to get rid of him. The O'Rahilly's last strength was used to write a farewell letter to his wife, a letter which he ended with the statement of, It was a good fight.
Another difficult man to get rid of was James Connolly. Already shot in the arm and the ankle, the bed-ridden Connolly was being stretchered through the intricate tunnel system. Gangrene was already setting into his leg. Despite his multiple wounds, he was willing to fight to the death for both of his causes. But the fight had run out for many of the courageous volunteers that were carrying him. Connolly witnessed this as his men tunneled into R. Knott's department store and proceeded to begin to discard their volunteer uniforms and weapons for less conspicuous clothing in their attempt to get away. A last death or glory assault was planned, but Patrick Pierce had had enough after personally witnessing a family carrying a white flag run out of their burning building only to be mowed down by the British forces. For a man who had often written about the glory of battle, including claiming that the blood spilt was the red wine the earth needed to flourish, it was just too much. A surrender was ordered. Patrick Pierce, the worn-out president of the Irish Republic, chose Elizabeth O'Farrell, a dispatch runner, to inform the British High Command. Although she wore a red cross and waved a white flag, nervous British infantrymen initially shot at the 32-year-old midwife. She courageously crossed the 100 yards between combatants and was informed that nothing short of an unconditional surrender would be accepted. The British, proving they had some chivalry still remaining in them, then offered to drive the obviously exhausted woman back across the street. Her job wasn't done yet, however, as she was tasked with taking the surrender proclamation to all of the hubs of resistance that remained in the city. This included the Four Courts, Jacob's Biscuit Factory, the Royal College of Surgeons, South Dublin Union, and Devalera's Boland's Bakery. O'Farrell first went to the Four Courts and handed over the surrender document that had been signed by Pierce. It read, Believing that the glorious stand which has been made by the soldiers of Irish freedom during the past five days in Dublin has been sufficient to gain recognition of Ireland's national claim at an international peace conference, and desirous of preventing further slaughter of the civilian population and to save the lives of as many as possible of our followers, the members of the provisional government here present have agreed by a majority to open negotiations with the British commander. Although they believed that they could hold out for another month, the members holding the four courts reluctantly turned over their weapons. When the British commander counted the number that exited the facility, he stated, If I had known that this was the extent of the garrison here, you would have been out of here by half-past twelve on Monday morning last. The next day, Sunday, O'Farrell arrived at Boland's Bakery to find De Valera enjoying a much-needed wash. He placed a towel around his neck and read the order from Pierce, but quickly rejected it, telling O'Farrell that it was not properly countersigned by Thomas McDonough. De Valera was always a stickler for protocol. The exhausted O'Farrell left to track down McDonough for the necessary signature. A mile into her search, she found the Countess, who presented her to Michael Mallon in the Royal College of Surgeons. 
Although they had surrendered zero ground since Tuesday morning, his men in the park's trenches had reached the point of starvation, and he accepted the order. Upon which, Markavis removed her pistol from its holster, kissed it, and handed it over to the British. McDonough was then found in the biscuit factory and countersigned the order for De Valera. When she arrived with a properly signed order, it had already become clear to De Valera that the original order had been true, and he ordered his men to immediately stand down. As the disarmed rebels marched through the ruined streets of Dublin, hostile crowds amassed along the way. The citizens of Dublin had suffered a huge toll throughout the week. By the third day of the rebellion, pantries had been emptied of food, and many basic necessities were scarce. The smoke from the burning buildings permeated the floors of the tenement buildings. The sounds of gunfire, grenades, and heavy artillery were all around them, which thankfully masked the sounds of the wounded that had been abandoned in the streets. When the rebellion ended, a different kind of battle began to be waged, as medics treated the wounded and the dead were collected off the pavement. The Dublin Fire Brigade attacked the still smoldering wreckage of buildings throughout the Sackville district. Soldiers began to methodically search for unexploded shells, as well as abandoned canister bombs that were left waiting as unsuspecting death traps. Almost 3,000 had lost their lives in the conflict, and thousands more had been rendered homeless. Several hundred civilians were buried in a mass grave at Glasnevin Cemetery for fear that their remains would cause an epidemic in the city. The rising would leave scars all over Ireland. But the planned rebellion did not successfully spread throughout Ireland. In Wexford, the rising occurred without bloodshed, as 1,000 of the insurgents greatly outnumbered the British forces. But the surrender in Dublin resulted in their unconditional surrender as well. Galway also rose up, but a lack of arms meant that their success was short-lived. Two British cruisers arriving in port on Friday convinced them to disperse. In Limerick, Clare, and Fingal, there was a rising, but with little bloodshed and without support from Dublin, they each ended quietly. The rising was unsuccessful at delivering the Free State of Ireland, but it made heroes and martyrs out of all of those involved. Soon, De Valera will go from a minor erratic battle commander to the leader of Ireland. From there, he'll be able to dismantle the state and slowly redesign it in his own image. The rising was only the beginning. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.